Good morning. It's nice to see you. I, uh, I missed you all last, last weekend. I feel a little bit like Dorothy. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Until I woke up to all the smoke this morning. Um, I really enjoyed attending the Exalting Christ Conference at Community Bible Church in Vallejo last weekend and then uh, preaching at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. And uh, the saints there all pass along their greetings. Tim and Kathy LaFromboise wanted to make sure that I told everybody hello, um, as well as Brian Borgman. And uh, I know we've been away a little bit from the book of Romans. By the way, I rejoice that uh, the Lord used Pastor Christian Polynard last Sunday to proclaim the word of God. Bless, bless the Lord. Um, but there's, this is one more Sunday that we're not going to be back in Romans, Lord, Lord willing, next Sunday. But uh, I really felt that the Lord um, wants us to hear the message of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. Dave read the larger context, but Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 once again reads, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We have seen a lot of change. Uh, the last year plus, the last 20 years, during my lifetime, I think a lot has changed. But Isaiah, the prophet, also wrote and preached, ministered during a time of change in Israel. Uh, lots of people in America today, on both sides of the political aisle, by the way, uh, believe that we're in a time of national decline. And I won't go into all the reasons for that. I'll just make you depressed. Read the news and you'll see why. But Isaiah wrote during a similar period of national decline in Israel. In fact, uh, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah about 200 years before um, Isaiah's time of ministry. And then the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and the people were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians about 20 years earlier than when Isaiah was preaching. And the remaining southern kingdom of Judah, though it was still an independent nation, was in moral and spiritual decline. There was corruption on every front in Judah. And about a hundred years after Isaiah's ministry, Judah would be conquered and the people would be carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. And so that would mark the end, by the way, of this um, time of, of the United States of Israel, so to speak, the, Is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah, respectively. That, that would be the end. 
And chapter 39 ends with this tone of national doom and gloom. And uh, I would just like to emphasize a couple of things in the last few verses of chapter 39. There's the pro- the uh, basically the threat of God, the uh, assurance from God of impending judgment through Isaiah to King Hezekiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And why was that? It was because the, the hearts of the people culminating in the heart of the king did not trust in their God. They trusted in the things of this world like their wealth and like their weaponry and like their history. And uh, because of that presumption and because of their sin, God was going to use the pagan nation of Babylon to judge his people, Judah. And then another thing that I thought was noteworthy in verse 8, then said King Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will, there will be peace and security in my days. What a politician. <laughs> Completely short-sighted. Who cares about the future of my nation? As long as everything is peace and prosperity during my days, that's all that matters. Wow, nothing new under the sun. Politicians are still the same. Mortgaging the future in favor of immediate benefits. But anyway, that's the extent of my political commentary today. No no more. So in the light of that, in the light of the doom and gloom of uh, chapter 39, um, chapter 40 opens up with a note of comfort. There's a a light shining as chapter 40 opens up. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And by the way, this comfort that uh, God is communicating to his people was supposed to be comforting to Isaiah's contemporaries, but it was also intended by God to be comforted, comforted to those who would be carried away into captivity in Babylon. And so those who were in Babylon, as they were thinking about the good old days, when there was a combined kingdom, and then at least there was one half of that nation, Judah, and they're thinking back on those good old days in light of Judah's utter ruins, God wanted his people to be comforted. And the thing that God wanted them to be comforted by is his word. In verses 3 through 5, there's this voice crying in the wilderness. And we know from the New Testament that this is fulfilled in John the Baptist. But there was also a fulfillment in Isaiah's day. Uh, Isaiah played this role uh, in, in part. And then in verses 6 through 8, we read about this contrast between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. A voice says, cry, 
And I said, what shall I cry? And here's what he's supposed to cry. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And again, there's nothing new under the sun. People in Isaiah's day as well as people in our day are enamored with human beauty. They're enamored with movie stars and models and sports stars and the like. And, and even politicians who look good. People are enamored with human beauty. And they seem to be attracted to human beauty and even put all of their stock into human beauty. But the reality is, the reality is, no matter how many uh, facelifts a person might have, uh, no, ma no matter how many anti-wrinkle treatments they might have, no matter how many supplements and drugs they might take, the fact of the matter is human beauty fades away, doesn't last. So what are we supposed to put our hope in then? Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And uh, to do justice to the text, the first thing that I want us to do is to notice what Isaiah has to say here about the frailty and transience of man. Because that's really what he's talking about in the first half of verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. And that is a metaphor for the fact that mankind, we as human beings, we are frail, we're weak, and we are transient. We, we change with time. And specifically, we decay with time. So he says, the grass withers, the flower fades. Isaiah wants us to think about wild grass and desert flowers. And we're in an ideal environment to picture that metaphor. Uh, most springs, since I've been here in this valley, uh, we usually have some rain in the springtime. And sure enough, in the Indian Wells Valley, as well as other places, April showers bring May flowers. So we usually get some rain. And then uh, in the terrain around us and on the hills, usually turns green with beautiful wild desert grass. And then there's all kinds of different colors from the desert wildflowers. The hills behind our house, when we were first looking at that house, we were looking at it when we had quite a bit of rain and then the sun came out and on the Rademacher Hills, they were, they were green. And in the little canyons between the hills, they were, looked like velvety purple and all kinds of different colors from the beautiful wildflowers. And we all know the story. We look at that green grass, we look at those beautiful wild flowers, and we know they're not going to last. Because pretty soon we know the rain stops, 
Some years, there's no rain at all, like this year. But even when we have rain, it stops, and then the sun comes out, the temperature breaks 90, and then we get the W word in the springtime. And that hot desert wind just blows over that green wild grass and beautiful, colorful desert wild flowers. And it seems like in a day, it's all dead, turns brown. That's what Isaiah wants us to think about. That phenomenon that we see every single year in the desert is the picture of what it's like to be us, to be human beings who are frail and transient. We are weak. We change with time. We decay. A few years ago, I... uh, got a new driver's license. And for quite a few years, I don't remember, maybe it was eight, I don't know, but in California, if you have a clean driving record, and I do, I try to drive conservatively. Uh, Driving on the 395 for all these years has taught me to really drive conservatively. And so I didn't have any tickets or accidents or anything, so I didn't have to get a new driver's license uh, my driver's license renewed automatically with the fee, and I'd keep on using the same picture, and I got kind of used to that picture. And then one day, uh, I had to get a new picture taken and all that, so I go out to my mailbox, and I get out this envelope from the DMV, and I get out my driver's license, and I, I remember doing this. I did a double take. Who is that guy on my driver's license? <laughs> Things had changed in eight years or so. There's no escape. There's no getting around it. We can try, but the reality is time keeps on marching on. And with time marching on, the grass withers and the flower fades, including in our person. In Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says this. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. That's really sobering. Its place remembers it no more. It's just reality that for most of us, After we die, in a few short years, say 20 years or so, no one's going to remember us. And I'm not trying to be mean and dramatic. It's just true. I, I think of my own mother. She passed away in 2012. And obviously, I miss her. My brothers miss her. My wife misses her. We say that often. Uh, My kids miss her, but I have one grandson, one grandchild. Charlie has never met Grandma Norma. And so that generation not only is not going to remember Grandma Norma, Grandma Whitcomb, they've never even known her. They never even met her. And really, I'm in the same boat as well after I go There's my kids. I know they'll miss me. 
Um, I've got one grandchild. Hopefully we have more, Lord willing. I, I trust that they'll miss me. But then that next generation, they may not even know me. And then the next, it's just, I'm just gone. That is real life. That's reality. One generation, maybe two generations, hardly anyone will even know that we're here. And it's just a stark reminder that we are subject to change. Whatever we touch, whatever we create, whatever we're in charge of, it's all subject to change. Think about everything that um, has to do with human society, with with science, so-called. Science changes. True science doesn't necessarily change, but science in terms of what people claim under the guise of science definitely changes over the years. Political views and political power change. Ever hear of the Whig Party? Popular culture changes. Even religion changes. By religion, I don't mean true religion, God-revealed religion, but I mean what people do in the name of God, in the name of religion. Turns out it's really fashionable. There are fads in religion. Religion changes. What changes lie ahead? What will 2022 bring our way as a nation, as a church? Who's going to come? Who's going to go from our, our own fellowship? What will 2022 bring your way as a family or in your life as an individual? One thing is absolutely certain. In the world of mankind, everything is subject to change. The rest of this year, next year, and every succeeding year will demonstrate in countless ways that man is frail and transient. The grass withers, the flower fades. But Isaiah goes on to assure us that in contrast to us and our frailty and our transience, there stands as a strong tower the permanence of God's word. The permanence of God's word. So the second half of Isaiah 40 and verse 8. But the word of our God stands forever. What is it about the word of our God that makes it stand forever? It's not because of the writing materials, the form of ink that they used centuries ago, even thousands of years ago, isn't eternal. It wasn't what they wrote on, whether it was animal skins or papyrus. That decays. Even our modern paper decays. So what makes the word of our God stand forever? It's because it's the word of our God. The word of our God stands forever because God stands forever. The God of the Bible, the God who really is, is the eternal, never-changing God. 
In chapter 40 and verse 28, we read, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In chapter 57 and verse 15, Isaiah is going to describe the God of the Bible as the God who inhabits eternity. And that's really interesting language because it emphasizes that God is not just eternal, but everywhere in eternity, if you can imagine it, eternity past and eternity future, wherever eternity exists, there is God present in eternity. He inhabits eternity. That's how eternal God is. And God, in, uh, through the prophet Malachi, assured the people of God in a similar way, Malachi 3 and verse 6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in uh, answer to the question, what is God? Which is a great question to ask. What is God? Here's their answer. I forgot the number in the catechism, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So in contrast to the frailty and transience of man, God's word stands forever. And God's word stands forever because God himself stands forever. He's eternal and unchangeable. And this truth is designed to bring comfort to the people of God. Remember? Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says uh, your God. And that is comforting, isn't it? Because if our comfort in the midst of trying times and changing circumstances and all of the manifestations of the frailty and transience of man, if our comfort comes from man, what kind of comfort is that? But our comfort comes from the eternal, unchanging God who describes himself as the God of all comfort and who himself never changes. It's very comforting. And so now what we're going to do is think about some, some takeaways, some implications of this revelation from God. So the permanence of God's word. And now let's think of some takeaways. The first takeaway is that this is true. The word of our God stands forever. Then the Bible itself will always be preserved. The Bible itself will always be preserved. The Bible is the permanent written record 
of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20. In the Bible, we have the prophetic word, like the word spoken by Isaiah, the prophetic word made more sure. Because by nature, written words are more permanent than just spoken words. So in the Bible, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Therefore, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 promises that the Bible itself will stand forever. The Bible will never be lost or destroyed. It will always be preserved. And Jesus assured us of this. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' words will last forever. Jesus' words will stand just as all of God's word will stand. And guess what? History has proven this. It's, It's a privilege that we have Looking back on this promise, which, by the way, was written uh, over 700 years before the time of Christ, so like 2,700 years or so, going on 2,800 years when Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 was written. It's one thing for Isaiah to say, the word of our God will stand forever, but it's another thing for 2,800 some years to go by and for us to actually see, wow, that's true. That's actually been fulfilled. Think about the Old Testament scriptures as an example. We have over 3,000 Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate containing the Old Testament, and over 1,500 manuscripts of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and over 65 copies of the Syriac Peshitta. And with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, we were able to do a calibration. We were able to see, well, how well have the Old Testament manuscripts that we have had historically been preserved? And the Dead Sea Scrolls have demonstrated that they have been remarkably preserved. In fact, as you total up all of the various textual variants, and there's no getting around textual variants when you're talking about handwritten, hand-copied manuscripts, there's um, the, the, the total text of the Old Testament that is reflected in the ESV Old Testament, there's less than 1% of the text that has a textual variant associated with it. Far less than 1%. And of that less than 1%, number one, there's no Christian doctrine that's in question. And number two, nothing's actually been lost. Because in these textual variants, it just means, well, is that verse, does it contain this word or that word? But 
no matter which choice you take, and there are different opinions, but no matter which choice you take, one of them is the original. Do you see? Nothing has been lost from the Old Testament scriptures. Well, what about the New Testament? And you know, I'm sure you've heard these numbers. 5,700 Greek manuscripts, 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in various languages, and more than a million quotations in the church fathers from the New Testament scriptures. Do you know that even if we didn't have any manuscripts of the New Testament, we could reproduce the whole thing just from the quotations from the church fathers? In fact, the New Testament has over 1,000 times as many manuscripts as the work of the average classical author. And the accuracy of transmission for the New Testament is very similar to the old. Less than 1% of the, of the text. And the other thing about Christians is we don't try to hide it. So you look in the Old Testament, you look in the, in the New, and sometimes you're going to see little notes and it'll say, the older manuscripts contain this or that. Maybe there's a, a movable new at the end of a word, and some manuscripts have it and some manuscripts don't. But we, we display it. We don't hide it. We don't sweep it under the rug because it's actually an incredible validation of God's promise to preserve his word. Because the reason why there are textual variants to begin with is because there have been thousands upon thousands of copies. And those copies and the samples that we have from different periods of church history show remarkable accuracy in transmission and more importantly, that nothing has been lost. Nothing has been lost. And so we actually have empirical, documented, scientific proof that Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 is correct. The word of our God will stand forever. Follow the science. Believe the Bible. And the thing is, this preservation has not occurred in a vacuum. From the days of the Assyrians and the Babylonians to Roman emperors like Nero, to the tyranny of Roman Catholic popes, to secular authoritarian governments of all stripes, countless evil men have tried to wipe the Bible from the face of the earth, and they've all failed. Voltaire, the 18th century French atheist, predicted that 100 years from his time, Christianity would become extinct. Well, obviously, that's not true. But you've heard that God has a sense of humor, right? Listen to what happened in the case of Voltaire. So here he is predicting that in 100 years, Christianity would become in, uh, extinct. Instead, 50 years after his death, 
the Geneva, the Geneva Bible uh, Society was using Voltaire's house as a publishing house to produce stacks of Bibles. One scholar, Bernard Ram, wrote this. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and committal read. But somehow, the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology of classical or modern times has been so subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? And with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet. And yet, brothers and sisters, here we are with copies of God's word in our laps. The word of our God stands forever. It's amazing. Secondly, by way of takeaway, God's promises stand. God's promises stand. That was the original context of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. God had promised to use the people of Israel as a light to the nations. God had promised the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that from their seed, all of the families and all of the nations would be blessed. The Messiah would come into the world through Israel. And Isaiah himself writes about that. And so their suffering, the, the darkness that they were going to endure for a time nationally was not going to be permanent even though their outward circumstances looked dire and depressing and on the political scene it was doom and gloom. Yet God had made great and precious promises to and through them and his promises were going to stand. But what if, what if the Babylonians or the Assyrians after them were more than God could handle? What if God had bitten off more than he can chew by saying, you know what? I'm going to judge you by sending those who come after you into captivity into Babylon? What if Babylon ran out of control? Well, notice what Isaiah assures us also in chapter 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They, they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
That's how much God is nervous about international geopolitical affairs. No one can get in God's way. Even Nebuchadnezzar later on, ironically, the dictator of Babylon, even he would come to realize that God is the sovereign God and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and no one can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? The God of the Bible is the God who rules the nations and his will cannot be thwarted. He will never be disappointed. He will never be frustrated. He will never be stopped. He'll never be sidetracked. He'll never be forced into, into resorting to plan B. This is the God of the Bible. All of God's promises will be fulfilled. His promises depend on no one and no thing. God's promises depend on himself, on his own sovereign will. If you look forward into Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah develops this. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 10 and 11. In fact, if you start in verse 9, Isaiah 46 and verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now, notice how God describes himself in a way that sets him apart from idols. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Notice what God does not say. Here's what distinguishes me as God. I know what's going to happen. I allow things to happen. No. I am God and there is no other. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. I speak it into existence. I say that it will be so. And he goes on saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Lots of people have this terrible idea of God that is largely a failure that God has a will, God has a counsel, God has a purpose, and if only fallen man would cooperate, then God's will would be done. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a God that mankind, the fallen creature, has created in his own image. The God of the Bible says with holy confidence and assurance, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And it's all encompassing. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Even the free choices of men are included in God's counsel. I have spoken I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. 
That's why God's promises stand. Think of all of the promises that we love as believers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, as a believer, you will not perish. You have eternal life. And the same Jesus promises that no one is going to pluck you from out of his hand. No one is going to pluck you from out of his father's hand. This, the same Bible says that we know that all things work together for good to those who are uh, the called according to his purpose, to those who love God. And that's not because there's just this inherent property in things that cause them to work together for good. It's because the God of Isaiah is the God of Romans chapter 8 who declares the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. No one can stop him. And so if he purposes all things to work together for our good, then all things will work together for our good. No one can stop him. He promises, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That promise stands. And there are so many more. God's promises stand. Then, the third takeaway is the gospel stands. The gospel stands. Isaiah says the word of our God stands forever. I'm saying the gospel stands. And why do I say that? Because the apostle Peter said it. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So notice Peter's logic, by the way. First, you are born again. Then there are consequences in your life. Since you have been born again, therefore, love. And he says in verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, not of something that changes and decays, but something that is imperishable and is beyond decay, impervious to decay. Through the living and abiding word of God. Now notice verse 24. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Does that sound familiar? That's straight out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And then how does Peter wrap up this argument? And this word, Peter says, is 
the gospel, the euangelion, the good news that was preached to you. The, the gospel is the heart of the word of God. The gospel is the main thing that God's word is all about. And Peter says that the gospel, like the rest of the word of God, remains forever. And that has incredible ramifications. That means that the gospel message, which is, by the way, that you cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. We are sinners. We are we are totally depraved. Our hearts are desperately wicked by nature. There is none good, no, not one. But the good news is that in spite of who we are and what we've done and what we deserve, God sent forth his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do what we could never do. He died on the cross in our place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then God raised him from the dead for our justification. And whoever believes, whoever puts their hope and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the promise of the gospel is you shall be saved. Amen. Well, if the gospel stands, then today's gospel was Isaiah's gospel? Was Adam and Eve's gospel? There's not multiple gospels. There's one. What changes between the Old Testament and the New is the, the clarity, the brightness, the fullness of how Jesus Christ was revealed to the saints. And so under the Old Testament, believers were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. But that Jesus Christ was revealed to them through types and shadows. But he's still the same Christ. And to us, he's been revealed through the blazing light and clarity of the New Testament. But it's the same gospel. It stands. And what's so beautiful about that is that we're guaranteed times are going to change in the future. But no matter how future history does change, the gospel is going to stand. And it stands today. Which means that if you're not a believer today, then you can be saved today. You can believe in the Jesus of the gospel. And you can have eternal life today. And then you can be assured that whatever comes your way from the economy, from fires, from the coronavirus, or from the next pandemic, or from government persecution, or whatever, you can be assured that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. The gospel stands. And then, finally, the Great Commission stands. Remember the Great Commission? From Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus begins at verse 18 by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That great commission from King Jesus, from the captain of our salvation, does not change. That's comforting to me as a pastor. It's comforting to me as a believer. It's comforting to me as a pastor. That means no matter what happens in Ridgecrest, no matter what happens in California, no matter who comes and who goes regarding attending our church, our mission stays the same. We don't have to invent a new mission with a new message and new methods. Oh my goodness sakes, there's hardly anybody coming to church anymore. We got to change gears, do something else. No. Our calling, our duty, our commission from Jesus Christ is the same. Make disciples of all the nations. Teach them the word of Christ. To put it in other words from Jesus, preach the gospel to every creature. So, Again, that's really comforting to me. No matter what happens, we need to continue pressing on, being obedient to the Lord, accomplishing what he's called us to accomplish, and just uh, believe his word, be obedient to his word, and wait on Christ for the results. But in all these ways, and more, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray.